This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers is continuing to add details to his plan for the 2023-25 state budget. Evers said today that, quote, there will be a change, unquote, in the state's shared revenue funding for local communities, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Evers has floated dedicating 20% of state sales tax revenue for shared revenue. Republicans who control the state legislature have agreed there is a need to boost local government funding, but have suggested spending levels could be lower. Evers also said today that he would consider rejecting any Republican budget plan that doesn't significantly raise pay for corrections officers, prosecutors, and public defenders. Low pay and long hours have made it difficult for the state to hire new employees across the criminal justice system. Wisconsin officials say the state has seen an uptick in child labor complaints over the last five years. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that trend matches a rise in complaints across the country. The U.S. Labor Department says it's seen a 69% increase in cases of children being illegally employed since 2018. Federal officials are currently investigating more than 600 cases of possible child labor exploitation. In Wisconsin, the State Department of Workforce Development's Equal Rights Division received 86 minor employment complaints last year, compared to just 18 in 2018. Last week, federal officials announced new efforts to fight rising child labor abuse through a partnership between the Labor Department and U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The announcement comes after the Labor Department resolved one of the largest child labor cases in its history following an investigation into Wisconsin-based Packers Sanitation Services. Dane County's largest Methodist congregation has voted to part ways with the larger United Methodist Church over ongoing disagreements over same-sex marriage and LGBTQ leadership. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, members of the Asbury United Methodist Church on Madison's west side voted 224 to 76 on Sunday to break from the denomination. The Madison Church joins hundreds of congregations across the country choosing to disaffiliate with the national organization because they oppose the national church allowing same-sex marriage or ordaining LGBTQ clergy. The United Methodist Church currently bans both, but there is speculation that those positions could officially change in the near future. The State Journal reports the vote raised strong emotions and division on both sides of the issue, with many longtime Asbury congregation members who opposed leaving, saying that they will no longer attend. Three Madison-area nursing homes are on the federal list of worst-performing facilities after several issues of neglecting their residents, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Several residents have died because facilities ignored care guidelines. Belmont Health and Rehabilitation Center, Middleton Village Nursing and Rehab, and Wanakee Manor Health Center have all received immediate jeopardy citations, which means that their non-compliance with regulations caused their residents harm. President Joe Biden promised to increase scrutiny of facilities on the list. Rick Abrams from the Wisconsin Healthcare Association said inspectors need to focus more on helping facilities improve instead of just fining them. Nursing home owners say they are trying to improve in order to prevent these incidents from happening again. South Madison should have its first grocery store since the 1950s by the end of the year, according to a city press release. The city is partnering with Christy Maurer to open the grocery store Maurer's Urban Market. The city will buy land from the Rural Enterprises Development Team and nonprofit Moving Out and lease it to Maurer. Mauer's Urban Market will be a full-service, 24,000-square-foot store. It will provide a wide selection of grocery staples, meat and seafood, and a bakery and deli. 
The mayor says this is an important step toward ensuring food security for people in the neighborhood. Advocates opposed to the deployment of F-35 jets in Madison have harsh words for Wisconsin U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. Members of Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin, who have been leading the opposition to the placement of F-35 jets at Truax Airfield on Madison's north side, have been protesting Baldwin's support of it for years. Today, though, they're pushing back on Baldwin's announcement last Friday of nearly $800,000 for community outreach and noise mitigation planning in preparation for the arrival of the aircraft. According to Baldwin, a Democrat, the grant will fund community outreach initiatives, including town halls and multilingual education initiatives, along with a study to assess noise mitigation options. Baldwin's announcement, says Tom Boswell, an organizer with Safe Skies, was, quote, hypocritical and insulting. He adds that it's particularly insulting that the grant will fund community outreach, as advocates have been reaching out for the senator for four years about their concerns over F-35s. Safe Skies has held community forums along with protests in opposition to the Jets. Another protest is scheduled three weeks from today. The first F-35s are expected to arrive at Truax Field a couple months from now in late April or early May, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Eight years after Tony Robinson was shot and killed by a Madison police officer in an apartment on Willie Street, Robinson's family and friends gathered to grieve and remember his life. But while the officer who killed him was not charged in 2015, Robinson's family said that they still have hope that justice will prevail. WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout was in attendance at last night's vigil. Around 60 people gathered in front of the gray-blue building at 1125 Willie Street last night to remember the life of Tony Robinson, who was shot and killed by a Madison police officer eight years ago yesterday. Family, friends, and community members held candles and signs calling for Matt Kenny, the Madison police officer who shot and killed Robinson in 2015, to be charged with first-degree reckless homicide. On March 6, 2015, friends of Tony Robinson called 911 for a check person call, saying that Robinson had been acting erratically after consuming psychedelic mushrooms. When Kenny entered the stairwell of the apartment at 1125 Willie Street, he shot Robinson seven times, killing him. Sharon Irwin, Tony Robinson's grandmother, has been fighting to hold Kenny accountable since 2015 and led last night's vigil. Irwin, who did not receive any money from the $3.35 million settlement with the city, criticized officials for deciding to pay out instead of charging Kenny. They thought that throwing millions of dollars at somebody mattered. That it would be what stopped anybody from doing anything. Well, <laughs> I'm a PTSD veteran. <laughs> and I say, yeah, f- you. <laughs> you Keep your money. Kenny. I don't need your money. I want your money. <laughs> your money ain't. <laughs> it killed my family. It destroyed us. After Sharon Irwin was her daughter, Laureen, who had harsh words for District Attorney Ishmael Ozane, who declined to charge Kenny. And we will have a jury of 12 of our peers judge you. Not some sweaty, scary in the DA's office telling us that we can't get it because he's too afraid to lose his position. You work for us. We put you there. You're not allowed to spit in our face. My father used to say, don't 
on my shoe and tell me it's rain. This is what the city of Madison has done for eight years. And now she's fighting back. Kenny, who maintains that he killed Robinson in self-defense, is still employed by the Madison Police Department. That's despite regular calls from community advocates to remove him from the city's police force. After around half an hour of speeches last night, folks holding signs stood in the streets, fists in the air for a moment of silence for Tony Robinson. After the moment of silence, supporters began chanting to remind everyone who it was that was killed on Willie Street eight years ago. So what's his name? Tony Robinson! What's his name? Tony Robinson! What's his name? Tony Robinson! 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 Meanwhile, a complaint to use a little-known state statute to investigate and possibly press charges against Kenny is lingering through the courts. Irwin filed the petition last year and today has the support of half a dozen lawyers in the case. It uses a rarely used state law that says if a DA does not press charges, a citizen can petition a judge to take up the case instead. If that judge finds that there is probable cause that a crime did take place, then a special prosecutor is assigned to the case. Irwin's petition questions Kenny's version of events, pointing to evidence that was not factored by Ozane but was introduced in the family civil rights lawsuit. Irwin says that this petition is her way of trying to get justice for her grandson. We go everywhere we can to figure out how citizens can take their justice in their house without using a gun. Without doing the same thing they're doing. Look, we're going to use your system. Your system. Your laws, your ways, your rules. And if they're not there for us, we are going to make them. Last year, a Dane County judge had agreed to take up the case, but after that judge retired in December, the petition bounced around between several judges, with seven Dane County judges recusing themselves due to conflicts of interest, the Capital Times reports. The petition is now in the hands of Dane County Judge Stephen Elke, who has agreed to take up the case, but has not yet set a new court date. Lorraine Carter, Tony Robinson's aunt told WORT this morning that she hopes this lawsuit not only helps the Robinson family find justice, but other families whose relatives were killed by police as well. When this happens, and since it's happening, this is going to set a precedent, Mm -hmm. hopefully, for the rest of not only the state, but hopefully the country. Other, Mm -hmm. Other states pick up this legislature and pass legislature like this, right? At the end of the day, Sharon Irwin says that she wants the world to know her grandson as she knew him. He's this big, goofy boy. He's six foot five. He longboard everywhere. He tried to teach me to longboard. But I was like, okay. (laughs) He got me to quit smoking cigarettes. And and he he was he did a lot of things. He was he knew a lot of people. He knew a lot of people. He liked to talk to people. He went around to a lot of people. He just was a very happy-go-lucky boy. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. The state of Wisconsin currently has its largest budget surplus on record. Governor Tony Evers has proposed his budget, and now it's up to the Republican-controlled legislature to craft its version. A new analysis from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum takes a look at major takeaways from the governor's budget proposal and the provisions that are best set up to succeed across the aisle. 
WORT reporter Abigail Levins has more. Oftentimes, state lawmakers have to decide, you know, what what programs are we going to cut? Are we going to have to increase taxes? You know, all these painful decisions that often come about when there's not enough funding to pay for all the things the state government does. This time, we're in the unusual position of having the opposite quandary, so that's a good thing. That's Mark Sommerhauser, a researcher for the Wisconsin Policy Forum, which just released a report that summarizes the main points from the governor's budget proposal. Sommerhauser says they plan to do more specific reports on major issues from the budget, like tax reform and funding for higher education. This report, though, focuses on proposals that could be best set up for compromise in a divided government. One item that looks like it will have bipartisan support? Sales tax. He wants to um, essentially earmark 20% of all um, state sales tax revenues to go to shared revenue to municipalities and counties. And that would be, you know, a very sizable increase in the amount of aid that they would receive. Um, We do know that this this concept of giving municipalities and counties 20% of state sales tax collections That is something that some Republican lawmakers have also indicated that they're interested in considering. Meanwhile, Governor Evers has proposed over $2.6 billion in state funding for schools. But the legislator has already said they want to lower that amount. Summerhauser says it is likely that the legislator will propose a lower amount of aid to schools in their version of the budget. Another controversial measure is funding for public health care and Medicaid. The report says it is unlikely that the legislature will support any expansion of Medicaid in the upcoming budget. The other two topics in the report discussed how much of the budget surplus the state should use and how much funding should go to transportation. Summerhauser says the Wisconsin Policy Forum wants to highlight that this surplus is not guaranteed in future years. This means that it is important to consider one-time expenses in the budget because not all the money will be available again in 2025. The governor has proposed several one-time items, including funding for internet access and funding to pay off roads and bridges. Meanwhile, the Republicans say they want to see a budget that's more conservative on spending. The Legislative Budget Writing Committee will weigh the governor's budget for the next several months. When they're done, they'll send it back to the governor, who can sign the bill as is or veto it in full, but most likely will use a power known as line item veto to make specific changes. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow is International Women's Day and ahead of that, the city of Madison is releasing a documentary about the first women who have served as firefighters, paramedics, lieutenants, and chiefs in the fire department. WORT reporter Jessica Lindahl talked to Cynthia Schuster, spokesperson for the Madison Fire Department, to discuss her experiences and involvement with the production of this film. Mary Sweeney and Bev Burr are some of the first of the total eight women to graduate from the Madison Fire Recruit Academy in 1980. A new documentary of the city of Madison shares their experiences as they entered a male-dominated environment. Every day you would receive a evaluation there'd be a list of things that we had done that day, Um, whether it was rappelling down a building, carrying a ladder down, um, hanging a smoke ejector, or whatever you were happened to be doing, you would be evaluated on it. I mean, it just almost got laughable after a while because 
There were no specific comments about how you did something, even though you completed it in your mind, you completed it just fine. But it always said, at, at the end of our paper, on the end of the day, it was always lacks upper body strength. The 110-minute documentary is titled In Her Boots. The film celebrates the Madison Fire Department's 40th anniversary of the first women graduates from the class of 1980. The film is the product of Madison Fire Department spokesperson Cynthia Schuster. She says these are important stories to tell. You know, we all get to see it and have a deeper sense of appreciation for where we've come from and and where we are at today. And then as the story continues over the next 40 years, we have a chance now to make an educated choice about whether we're going to write a different chapter instead of perhaps repeating history without even realizing that we, that we may have been. So now we have this historical record. We have something to look back on. We have something to learn from. And we have an opportunity now to do better and be better as we move forward. According to Schuster, currently 13% of Madison's fire department are women. Only six commissioned women firefighters are people of color. Because this underrepresentation continues to be a major problem, Schuster says that she wants the film to be inspirational for other women interested in these career paths. So I hope that the film um, demonstrates, for one thing, that we have a rich history of women in the fire service here in Madison. And I know that there are people who are going to watch it and think, ah, <laughs> Madison Fire is the place to be. And they'll know then that when they come to the Madison Fire Department, they're not going to be the only woman and they're not going to be the first woman. Schuster says equity is still catching up in the EMS field, despite the progressive history within the Madison Fire Department. A lot of those challenges and battles that one might have to sort of gear up for if they were to be the first or the only um, doesn't exist anymore because we went through that 40 years ago. That's not to say that all of our challenges are resolved um, because women are still an underrepresented group in, in the fire service. But in many ways, Madison has evolved to uh, become a role model for other fire departments and EMS agencies across the nation. The film will premiere theatrically tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. at Mitby Theater on Madison College's Truax campus. The in-person event will also include a talk from some of the women firefighters of the 1980 Academy graduates. Additionally, the film is available to watch on demand now from the Madison Fire Department's YouTube channel and will be streaming on Roku, Apple TV, Charter Digital 994, and AT&T UVerse 99 starting tomorrow. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jessica Lindahl. Every Tuesday, we check in with the Daily Cardinal for the latest news coming out of the UW-Madison campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Madeline Afonso spoke with news writer Liam Barron about the role of AI in the classroom. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by news writer Liam Barron to talk about artificial intelligence and chat GPT usage in school. Thank you so much for coming here today. Glad to be here. Can you briefly explain what your story is about? Yeah, so I interviewed a few professors, uh, well, three actually, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and kind of talked to them about their feelings surrounding the 
language or chatbot, um, ChatGPT, uh, which has sort of become a pretty hot button issue recently. Uh, it came out for public release, I want to say in December, um, and since then there's been concerns about students using it for plagiarism uh, and more generally how it's going to affect our academic, personal, professional lives, etc. For those who don't know, can you explain a little bit more what ChatGBT is and why people are worried about it? Yeah, so ChatGBT is a chatbot developed by OpenAI, uh, which is an AI research laboratory. Um, and essentially what it does is it had scanned the U or the uh, the internet up until the year 2019, I want to say, uh, and it looks through English language um, websites and sort of develops these relationships between words uh, by converting those words into vectors. It's really, it's a complicated process, but essentially the bot is sort of making a, like a facsimile of what our English language might look like. So it develops like an idea of what relation, how the relationships between words can be translated into numbers. And so when you give it a prompt, say like, hey, like tell me about I don't know, whatever given topic, um, it will scan its knowledge and provide you with an answer that it thinks you will like. What was it like talking about this with Dr. Yo Nadan Mintz, an assistant professor and expert on machine learning and AI ethics? Uh, it was really cool. Um, he definitely gave me a really good sense of like, how does this very, very complicated technology works? And I'm sure he had to dumb it down a lot for me, but um, it was a really cool process of sort of getting to understand at least a little bit of how this seemingly sort of like magical um, robot uh, does have a process behind it and there are ways that it can be tracked um, and sort of like understood a little bit more thoroughly. Um, Dr. Mintz is also an expert in AI ethics. Um, and so that's also like an interesting angle to look at it from um, how does ChatGPT maybe exhibit our own biases and how uh, can we see the language that we put out on the internet reflected in what it gives back to us. Can you explain what the other professors said about having AI in their classrooms? Yeah, so I talked to uh, Dr. Larry Shapiro, who's a professor of philosophy at Madison. Um, and so one of the things, he had published an op-ed with the Washington Post kind of saying that he was pretty excited um, or at least not hesitant about the use of AI in classrooms. And so he found it helpful to have students analyze AI, especially because he's said essentially that, you know, it's going to be a part of our lives going forward. And so we should have um, sort of these ideas of how to use it, how to understand it um, and how to analyze it. And so that was the thing that was sort of echoed um, in my conversations with Dr. Joshua Calhoun, who's an English professor here at UW-Madison. And he had said something pretty similar, which is that you know, it's a tool and it is something that we're all still sort of learning how to use. Um, and so it can be helpful to have students analyze uh, these works. And so he had had students um, analyze a poem, actually, that it had generated uh, for his English class. Were you surprised by any of these takes? I, a little bit, yeah. Um, I mean, I think on the outset, I had this sort of idea that, you know, professors might be pretty vehemently opposed to students using this, um, but that wasn't universally the case. I think a lot of professors, um, or at least the ones that I talked to, sort of espoused this idea that, like, when Wikipedia came, first came out or when calculators first came out, um, other, you know, tools that sort of leverage our ability to make technology do what we want um, 
when those came out, there were concerns about like, how does this affect what we learned? Um, and so the Shapiro and Calhoun especially had said, you know, like this is sort of something that we're gonna have to get used to, but it is can be a pretty useful tool. And so it was surprising in the sense that they seemed pretty amenable to the idea of it, you know, staying around long-term. I know you have your own experience of using chat GBT in class. Can you talk about that and your reactions? Yeah, so I actually um, am in uh, Dr. Calhoun's class currently. Uh, and so we did, in fact, analyze a poem that ChatGPT uh, had created, which was supposed to Im imitate uh, the Renaissance poet uh, Edmund Spencer's just really big epic poem called The Fairy Queen. Uh, and so that has a pretty particular style of writing. Uh, called the Spencerian stanza. And so it's a really interesting rhyme scheme that we don't see replicated in a ton of other literature. Um, so Dr. Calhoun had made that robot try and uh, make that poem, uh, make that poetic form um, and had the robot make a response for that. And it ended up being pretty okay. Uh, I will say like, it wasn't perfect. Uh, and as an English student, I could definitely, you know, decipher some of those inaccuracies, but it was a lot better than I expected it to be. What did you learn or find most interesting while reporting this story? I think honestly, the idea that like, we do have to find ways to, you know, adjust our society to work around um, AI, because one of the things that Dr. Mintz had told me at the end of our conversation was like, you know, we've, we haven't really been in this position before where the college educated are the ones who are being threatened by automation. He had said that, you know, oftentimes it would be blue collar or other laborers who, you know, were threatened by automation that we've had in the past, but um, we're now coming to a point in time where the college educated are also, you know, facing some sort of like, not threat, but shift um, in the way that, you know, technology is affecting people. It's going to be interesting to see how we can structure our society to hopefully make this tool work out to our benefit or at least not hinder us. Um, and so I do think that and Dr. Minsett said that this is still a conversation that's really ongoing. Um, and how do we, you know, structure the way that we'll live to make the best out of this? Thank you so much, Liam. Yeah, thank you, Madeline. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down which animals are making their way back to Wisconsin this spring and the role that climate change has in altering their paths. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about phenology. It's a topic we've actually talked about before, except not really in a way that we've defined it. So defining it in scientific terms, phenology is the seasonal timing of life cycle events in plants and animals. And as rehabilitators, we are always talking about phenology in some form or fashion because we're talking about animals. Maybe they change timing of their hibernation patterns or migration, especially when we're talking about birds. It also has to do with when plants are flowering, but 
remember a lot of our animals are dependent on food sources like plants. And so when that timing changes, we get different regional effects. We talk about phenology a lot, especially when uh, we have the topic of climate change on our minds. And climate change is something that has, you know, continued to be in the discussion in the scientific community uh, for many, many years now, but is kind of hitting uh, an extreme point where, you know, climate change is happening and it is causing shifts in different areas of the world. In the Midwest, when we're talking about phenology, we're thinking about, you know, our short distance migratory birds, maybe our long distance migrants, because they are coming to Wisconsin or through Wisconsin, usually to breed, or mammals are waking up from hibernation expecting a certain food source to be available. So at the Wildlife Center here at DCHS, I was thinking about it this week because we are right in the beginning of March. We have already seen American and robins admitted to our wildlife center recently a muskrat who's you know they're awake kind of year-round in this time period but they start to get really active when the weather starts to warm up so that's one of those that i think to myself okay yep we're just hitting spring here it's also something where we start to see different animals that will arrive sometimes earlier than normal sometimes later than normal and i don't know about you but if you've seen all the sandhill cranes and the geese flying up above there have been a lot of them in this last couple of weeks. We've already gotten photos of field sparrows. That's definitely a species that comes earlier into Wisconsin, usually right here in March. It's just at the beginning. But, you know, to me, that was surprising, you know, right away in March to see there's an interesting, you know, percentage bar. You can look this up on eBird, which is part of the Cornell Lab. Basically, it's like a citizen science website that you can look up all the different, you know, data points from people who have birdwatched around the U.S. or around the world and look at when the timing of their arrivals in certain regions are, which, again, is related to phenology. So when I look at that bar chart for uh, Field Sparrow, it's like, ooh, you know, there's almost none here in January and February, but in Wisconsin, March is when it just starts to get busy until they get here into April and May. You know, American robins will be seen year-round, sure, um, and other species like goldfinch and morning doves, and we have so many of those at the Wildlife Center that that's pretty common. It's more when we start to see those unusual species show up, like I already heard a Phoebe back in the Wildlife Center area just around the property. You know, that's another species that's an early arrival. So it's really cool to be able to be out in the environment and identify them, but also as rehabilitators, be able to make a data point in our, you know, admissions of different six injured or orphaned patients to be able to say, okay, well, when are they actually here in Wisconsin? When is the first one arriving from a window strike? You know, there was a a really detailed long year study in Chicago, uh, about 22 years of data that showed that birds uh, that were coming in from window strikes or that were expected to be, you know, striking windows, those short distant migrants, migrants, it has actually arrived earlier and earlier each year, and it's been correlated with warmer spring temperatures. So that is um, part of a study that ended NPN did, which is the National Phenology Network. So definitely worth looking it up, but they've got observed change documents for all the different areas of the United States. And in the Midwest, one of those is that basically spring species of plants are blooming earlier, you know, birds are arriving earlier. We've even got things as far as walleye are spawning earlier, and that's from a study in Minnesota. So it's interesting, but it also really impacts the wildlife rehabilitation community because every one of those different types of animals, whether it's a bird, a mammal, a fish, a plant, all of that affects the other animals that are in our 
region. So, you know, if we're thinking trophic cascades or, you know, we're talking predator and prey interactions and we're talking breeding and breeding cycles and natality and when that timing changes, when babies are being born, all of that is dependent a lot of times on the favorable environment, the temperatures, the food availability, and all of that affects us in rehabilitation because if the food, for example, is not there or the temperatures are extreme, then we end up seeing a lot more injured or sick animals or ones that are more vulnerable to unpredictable conditions. And so uh, it's definitely that time of year right now where we should be looking out and seeing these different temperature fluxes. We'll start to see migrants coming in. Definitely be aware of what animals are in your yard. Maybe go out and listen and look for birds. Um, you know, participate in eBird and make an account so you can actually track those through citizen science. But also be on the lookout for animals that might not be looking well or that are just starting to breed because we are here as rehabilitators to help with advice um, in certain situations that might need attention. So I I urge you to go out during the, the March, April, May season and, you know, start looking for those animals and uh, enjoy the animals, but also, you know, make sure you know who your local rehabilitators are so that you can get them somewhere if they do need help, especially if the timing of their arrival is not exactly the best for them because that can happen. And we've had that happen multiple years. So be on the lookout for those animals. I think it's going to be an early spring. Enjoy the nice weather while it's there, but then, you know, also... Uh, sorry that it's still a little cold and there's some snow out there as we expected and have found out the last couple of days. Anyways, thanks for listening today. Uh, this has been our segment on WORT. We appreciate you listening. And if you have any questions about wildlife or if you find anything that's sick or injured, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was John Klein-Wilson. Welcome aboard, John. Your reporters were Abigail Levins and Jessica Lindell. Special thanks to feature contributors Madeline Afonso and the editorial crew at the Daily Cardinal and Jackie Sandberg. Thank you to our fundraisers, Michelle Wilson and Nate Carlin. Engineer Dave Lawrenson got the news on the air. Nate Wuggy helped produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Thank you to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. You make it happen. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrique Joe Patio. I'm Sarah Hopeful. Good night. <laughs>